0: Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alex Von Tobel, and I'm really excited to have you meet Zach Rattano, the co founder and CEO of Roe, the healthcare technology company with a mission to provide personal healthcare to everyone on the planet. Roe has three end to end verticals Roman, which is men's health, Rory, which is women's health, and Xero, which is focused on fighting addiction. After graduating from Columbia, Zach co founded a company in Y Combinator and then went to found Roman in 2017. Since her launch, Roe has been named one of the most innovative companies by Fast Company. Zach has been named a rising star by Inc. and included on the Forbes 30 Under 30. Zach, I'm so excited to finally get to meet you. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, So, Zach, I just want to quickly start uh, with the beginning. Uh, What is Roe in your own words, and how did you start it?
1: Yeah, You you described it uh, incredibly well. So, Roe is a digital healthcare company that handles everything from online diagnosis to the delivery of care and and medication um, and manages the ongoing treatment for that condition as well. And so from a patient's perspective, they come onto our site, they select a treatment they want to talk to a doctor about, they'll go through an, an online visit that is actually a smart online visit where the Questions will be based off of the answers that that patient provided, so it's dynamic. That information is then analyzed in real time, presented to a doctor. The patient and the physician will communicate either via phone, video chat, or message. The the physician will then make a determination if if treatment is safe and appropriate, and then we'll mail the medication directly to the patient's door um, and and manage uh, ongoing follow-up care as well. And as you mentioned, we power three digital health clinics, Roman for Men's Health, Rory for women's health, Zero for smoking cessation. Um, We also recently launched a $5 pharmacy where leveraging our existing infrastructure, which hopefully we'll get to more later on, but leveraging our existing infrastructure, um, we took the common most 500 generic medications for diabetes, um, heart disease, hypertension, and we're offering them for just $5 a month. So particularly now, when it might be difficult in a retail setting to to go pick up your medication, or if someone's uninsured or underinsured, it's an incredibly affordable and seamless way for people to get life-saving, saving medication.
0: Can you walk us from the beginning? Like, what was the aha moment? You know, what was part of Rose founding story uh, that made you say, I-, I wanna go do this for the next 15, 20 years of my life?
1: So, so it's, it's, as you mentioned, I think it's very, very personal to me, and I can, I can say this with a huge smile on my face, but each person in my family has had some life-threatening illness at one point in time or another. So my sister's a two-time cancer survivor and has an autoimmune disease. Um, my mom has neurological disease. My dad has had four, attack, four heart attacks and a stroke, um, and I have a congenital heart condition. Um, so I, I've seen the healthcare system as a patient and as the loved one of a patient, Um, And then my dad also was a physician um, and an expert in infectious diseases and an expert in sexual health in particular. So, um, you know, growing up in that household was very, very different than growing up in other households, (laughs) right? Uh, Some kids get birds and the bees conversations and I get, you know, pictures of general warts and and anatomical drawings of of the human body. So it was entirely different, entirely different upbringing. But he created an environment that was very, very safe and um, I felt comfortable sharing anything related to my health, Um, and so I actually had heart symptoms when I was about 14 years old, um, and we weren't able to actually get to the bottom of it. I had a Holter monitor. Um, I remember the the device itself, actually, for those of you who are saved by the Bell fans, um, so maybe uh, it it more resembled like Zach Morris's cell phone. It was this huge thing that I kept in my pocket, and when I had symptoms, um, I would put it on my chest, and then when I was 18, I went off to college and I started to experience heart symptoms again and I also started to experience erectile dysfunction. And given that my dad had created that really safe environment, I felt um, as comfortable as one could talking to their dad about, about their erections. So I, um, I brought that up to my dad and, and both of those things combined, you know, really had him dive in and said, okay, let, let's go see a cardiologist. And I went and had a stress test. For those of you who have never had a stress test before, you run on a treadmill, it gets steeper and faster and you see how your heart does. My heart peaked 2.30, 2.40, about nine minutes in, then went to zero, and I zipped off the treadmill. And my dad and the the doctor were able to bring me back, and I had a heart procedure a few days later where they burnt the parts of my heart that were causing it to to beat irregularly. So fortunately, I was incredibly lucky in the sense that that happened in a doctor's office. It could have happened on a soccer field. It could have happened on a basketball court. It happened in a doctor's office. Now, fortunately, my heart was fixed, but unfortunately, the main side effect of my heart medication, of my beta blocker, was erectile dysfunction which is what every um, 18-year-old college guy wants to experience. So my, my dad helped me navigate that, and then just about three and a half years ago, at this point, I started to experience heart symptoms again. So blood tests, stress tests, halter monitor. Um, at this time, it was actually just about the size of a quarter, and it, and it was a sticker that's stuck on my chest. So the technology, it was amazing to see uh, three halter monitors over the course of you know, 10, 15 years dramatically improve from a patient's perspective. Um, but I, was, I was entering in the healthcare system again, constantly to see what was wrong with my heart at the same time that my two co-founders were actually um, entering in the healthcare system as well with their partners because they were having their second and fourth kids. And I remember as though so that aha moment was, I was meeting with my cardiologist and they re-prescribed me my beta blocker, which I'd actually been able to go off a little bit. Um, and I remember blurring out everything that the doctor had said right after that. Uh, and because I, I knew the impact it was going to have on, on my life. I had a partner for three years at that, at that point, we've been together for six now. And, um, I, I first, frankly, I was, I was actually embarrassed by that response, right? My, my, uh, my heart condition and my heart procedure, um, seven years prior was one of the most impactful things in my entire life. Um, and it, and it led, and it led to so many different decisions. And and the fact that I was so focused on one thing first, I was embarrassed, but then I actually realized that there are these things, um, that affect people's day-to-day lives that, that are related to their health, that prevent them from tackling some longer term goals. And so for us, that was the aha moment there. When I shared that with Robin Saman, that we always wanted to build a healthcare company that could treat, you know, young, old men, women. Um, From beginning to end and really be there for them in the same way that my dad was for me growing up But we didn't have a specific place to start and so I think being able to start here um, And and what ED provided us was, was I had personal experience with it But it was the perfect place to start because it provided us the opportunity to build an ongoing relationship with patients build trust and ED is also, you know, it is often a sign of a more serious underlying condition Um, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, and it's connected to to so many other components of your body. Because if you think about it, you know, your nervous system, blood flow, um, all has to work in harmony together. So we knew we could start here and build a relationship on top of that. And it was something I had intimate experience with, but was very much always just the beginning um, and, and a wedge for us to establish trust between a patient and a physician.
0: Um, First of all, you're so charming and it's so wonderful to just hear you be so honest and so vulnerable
1: and also just... Uh, We should just hang out all the time because you're making me feel (laughs) incredibly good about myself. I'd love for you to just be with me throughout the day.
0: I want to just go from the beginning of building the company and standing it up. So I I get the kind of personal story. I get where it started from. What next? So you find your two co-founders how did you go from there to standing it up to a thriving company that now so many people know the name of and has already started to impact so many people? How did you get going?
1: So I would say I was, I was very lucky to meet Robin Saman. So I was at a venture studio called Prehype at the time. And Prehype was on, is in this office building in, in Chinatown. And it was on floors three and five. And Barkbox, that was founded by uh, Henrik Ordelin, who'd also founded the the startup studio, was on flo- floors two, four, and six. And uh, Simon was at that venture studio. He had uh, founded, managed by Q, and he had he had stepped back at this point to, to pursue other projects. And I had met Simon there. And I remember I started by working for Simon. And uh, I I remember this one Sunday night actually, and I had spent about ten straight hours. Um, manually coding the HTML for this email that he, he was going to send out earlier that week for one of the projects we were working on. And I remember I sent it to him and he methodically ripped it to shreds. I mean, absolutely ripped it to shreds. And I, frankly, I absolutely loved it. I, I looked at my partner, Cleo, and I said, you know, no matter what, I would follow him through a wall and I'm just going to attach myself to him because one of Simon's superpowers is he, he gets the most out of the people that he's working with and he really pushes them um, and, and, and they're able to do things that they didn't previously think were possible, but, but in a way that they're, they're excited to do it. And then Rob actually was, a, was VP of growth at BarkBox. And so at the Venture Studio, the, we were on the floor right, right right below Rob. And whenever we had a question, whenever we were testing out a new idea, I would just run up the stairs and I would bother Rob. And he had to put up with me because uh, we're in the same building. And I just kept asking him questions, kept asking him questions. And then I would go downstairs and whatever he said to do, whether it was on Google search or Facebook for all these tests that we were running, I would just implement them. And time and time again, they worked. It was absolutely insane. And so we realized at that moment, because we all wanted to start a company together and we all wanted to start a healthcare company. We were being exposed to the problems of the healthcare system together. and We didn't really know where to start until that moment. We all realized that we had very, very complementary skills. You know, we look at ourselves like a three-legged stool. If you remove any one of us, the thing is useless. But together, we provide a very, very great team. And so we always wanted to start a healthcare company together. And I think that part of getting started, I think, for us is actually just like doing the things. We were lucky. We were very, very lucky in the sense that we had all done it before, once or twice, right? So Saman had started, started Q. I had started a company that went through YC. And so... You know, we were able to actually raise money from our previous investors very, very quickly. And so I'd say that is not the the typical start for many people, right? So we were very, very lucky that we had already done that.
0: I want to ask quickly for everybody that's listening, walk us through your your funding history. And then I want to come back to telehealth and you being so smart and early at it. But just for everyone out there, how much money have you guys raised to date? And walk us through a little bit of your funding narrative.
1: Yeah, we, we've raised uh, $150 million in, in equity to date from fantastic uh, venture capitalists from General Catalyst, FirstMark, um, Initialized, Box Group, uh, Slow, Tusk, SignalFire, 3L Torch. We have a great, great group around us. And that's been over the course of, of three separate funding rounds.
0: That's amazing. And also, I think probably set you up uh, to go tackle what COVID is providing as a pretty exciting opportunity. Um, so you were... Focused on telehealth out of the gate, you were focused on a better, more human, uh, more digital customer experience out of the gate, and then COVID hits. Uh, walk us through just what you've learned and what's positioning Ro as you think forward the next five years, and what you're excited about.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic question. I think there's a bunch specifically that that COVID shed light on, right? I think it it shed light on a lot of the existing issues with the healthcare system, particularly around unburdening the healthcare system by reserving in-person capacity for those who can only be treated in person, right? If telemedicine does nothing else than reserve that in-person capacity for those who can only be treated in person, it saves lives. The second thing I think people saw was that telemedicine actually reduces the friction to a patient and a doctor communicating And when you reduce the friction of something occurring, it'll inevitably happen more frequently, right? So when when something happens more frequently, you're building a stronger bond between patients and doctors, and and you're actually enabling someone to be a more active participant in, in their health. Third thing that I think surprised a lot of people was the collection of data on that ongoing basis and in a very structured way that actually empowers physicians to, to make better and more informed clinical decisions right so i think what's been amazing to see is you know when someone comes on to row and they they go through that initial doctor's visit we're collecting a tremendous amount of information and automatically flagging risk factors flagging contraindications flagging you know drug interactions presenting that to a doctor And then maximizing their time together. So imagine if before you walked into a doctor's office in person, if they already, if you had spent 15 minutes and answered a perfectly ordered set of questions that were personalized to you, depending on your answers. And then the most important things relative to your chief complaint, the primary reason that you're there, were highlighted to the doctor and then you walked in the room. Right? If you're a diabetic, if you're HIV positive, if you have a family history of this, if you're on a wide variety of medications, if you have a history of an autoimmune disease, whatever it may be, the doctor is able to dive into what makes you most unique. And that's really facilitated through, through technology and, and telemedicine. And I think that we saw that play out now. And I think you know, everyone in the industry, frankly, would have, would have hoped for the appreciation or understanding of telemedicine to come for, from a different reason. But now that it's here, I also think we're seeing even the ability to have a more efficient allocation of resources in terms of giving people access to care that previously didn't, right? So whether that's rural communities, um, whether that's cost, whether that's on the licensing side, right? So something that New York did very early on was remove licensing requirements. Normally, a a physician um, has to be licensed in the state in which the patient is located, and the problem is that is that there's not a perfect distribution between physician supply and patient demand. Yep. Right? And and we have a, just generally, we have a shortage of, of providers uh, as a country. So not only do we have a shortage of providers, but they're also not evenly distributed in the way that they need to be. And so by New York lifting that licensing requirement and enabling uh, physicians or providers in other states that were less burdened at the moment to help New Yorkers um, was a wonderful moment because of what it did is it highlighted that telemedicine, I mean, that remote care could also lead to a more efficient distribution of those provider resources, which we're going to need more and more, given the fact that we just have this structural shortage.
0: Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close a round. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Can you tell everybody how COVID has just immediately impacted your business now that we're, call it, 90 days in? Did you see this interesting surge in any certain areas? How are you processing all of this live?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, as as you mentioned, I think there were a couple things that we did once, a couple things specifically to leverage our technology to help people who specifically, you know, thought they might be at risk of contracting, right? So we were the first telemedicine company to release a COVID-specific telehealth assessment based on CDC protocols and WHO protocols and working with infectious disease experts. We, we leveraged our technology to have a patient go through that dynamic visit and then, um, surface that information to a physician, and then they would communicate with their with their provider and determine what the best next steps would be. Whether that's self isolation, whether that would be in person care, whether that would be helping navigate or coordinate, um, you know, a trip to the emergency room potentially, contacting the Department of Health of that particular state, depending on that state's protocols. So that's yep. what we did immediately, and that was a tremendous all, sort of all hands on deck effort by the team. Um, the other thing we did is we expedited the launch of that five dollar pharmacy. So we pulled forward that from a product roadmap perspective. Um, so traditionally about 86 or 87% of prescriptions are picked up in a retail setting. So that's a, that's a habit that people are very comfortable with. But suddenly that option was removed or carried risk, right? So what I think telemedicine has now offered or digital, digital care in general is it has taken, previously it was um, positioning itself primarily around convenience and affordability, but now it carries with it an inherent safety value proposition as well. So, with so many people, unfortunately, either under or becoming uninsured by losing their employment, which is a whole nother discussion to get into about how our, how our health insurance is linked to our employment, but that's for a whole nother podcast. <laughs> for a whole other podcast. <laughs> whole other podcast. Um, but launching that enabled someone, whether they had difficulty accessing care in person and had insurance, it was five dollars, so that's the cheapest copay there is. So they didn't have to choose between it. Um, their insurance or paying cash, and for the people who are under or uninsured they were able to get access to some of the most common life-saving medications for chronic conditions so there was there was the work that we did specifically to help people who are experiencing the burden of of this public health crisis directly and then 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 we also started to launch more and more things where you know america's basic health care needs aren't going anywhere right? So we saw a massive increase in, in smoking cessation products and stress products. And we saw, you know, allergy products increase, smoking cessation increased by close to 100%. Sleep products increased by over 1000% month over month from, from March to April. So we saw a tremendous increase in a lot of our other products and services that were already available, but really needed it at that, that particular moment, given people didn't have access to in-person care.
0: Got it. Wow. Trust in healthcare is obviously critical. How do you think about establishing that trust? And I get a sense from it in terms of these you know, minute touch points with the customer to really make sure that they feel heard, listened to, trust the technology. But just how do you think about making sure that every customer of Roe really, really trusts Roe?
1: Yeah, there's the the way that we think about it, as you said, if if our mission, if our ultimate mission is to be that patient's first call, right, when they have a question, they have a symptom, um, whatever it may be, um, they look to us first to help them and to help guide them through the, the healthcare system, whether we can help them end to end or if they're better served by someone else, guide them through that process. In order to be that first call, when you think about who you know who the first call is in, in your life, it's who you trust the most, right? So so it's exactly what you said in terms of trust. And we think about it where there's three key components there. One is transparency, right? So they have to know everything about their health. We, we share with them where their drugs are made, where the factory is. Um, we've partnered directly with Pfizer to make sure that we can bring transparency to the entire supply chain from a pharmaceutical perspective, right? Where the ingredients are sourced, where they're stamped, where they're made and how it gets to us, um, as well as how their physicians are compensated, how our revenue model works, right? The second thing we have to do is ensure the highest level of quality and safety. Right? So we have a quality and safety team. We're constantly auditing. We built in real-time alerts um, that take in that structured data and make sure that providers on the network are, are practicing within, within the guidelines that our clinical and medical advisory boards have laid out, and that, that, that we're also making sure that, that patients are satisfied right, and that, that they're receiving a really high-quality experience. And the third thing, in order to get that trust as well, is, is a frequency of interaction. If you think about who you trust most in your life, it's not just because they came through once, right? Which is which is great, but it's because they come through time and time again. Right. And so for us, that frequency, that ongoing care, that one-to-one messaging, that those scheduled follow-ups, um, is crucial to to building that relationship with patients.
0: I love it. You had a crystal ball and you could share with everybody listening what you think the future of healthcare, telecare, whatever it yeah. could be. And I want the like unvarnished notes that you, that are dusty because you're trying to figure it out right now. What are some of your predictions?
1: Yeah, I think the simplest way for us to think about it is that there there will simply be more healthcare done online or in the comfort of your home. And I think that how, how we get there in our mind is is the patient at the center of it. And we've seen that. I think there, there's a bunch of decisions that we've made, right? Like I think, you know, we intentionally don't accept insurance because... Every single day, the only stakeholder, the only entity determining whether or not we are providing value is the patient. And if you look at other parts of the healthcare system, if you look at cash pay parts of the healthcare system, LASIK eye surgery, cosmetic procedures, as technology improves, price comes down, right? Competition exists and it it functions far more towards traditional consumer experiences. Another example is is a healthcare company that I'm a big fan of. I used to be a member of, Oscar. But that's an insurance company that recently released a $3 formulary. Unbelievable initiative, right? However, they were unable to offer it to their patients in New York, in New Jersey, in California, the majority of their patients. So here you have an insurance company who wants to decrease the price of life-saving medications to patients, and they are unable to do so because of pre-existing relationships or contracts or or bureaucratic reasons, actually, why they're unable to decrease the price. Um, I don't want to even build in that world. I don't want to exist in that world. Right. Um, and, the, and the third thing is, I think when we look at other countries, you know, Singapore is a great example of this. And I'm, I'm not saying that the U.S. could ever be identical to Singapore. But one key thing that they do is that they do allow patients to control the flow of money. So people look and say healthcare is four percent of their GDP compared to 18 percent of ours. However, the government still pays for 50 percent of the expenses. It's just it's driven by the patient. So everyone, every single day is competing over serving what the patient determines is of value or not. Patients at the center. So if I have to make, you know, two quote unquote predictions in the next 10 years, I'd say, you know, patients are gonna be at the center and they're going to be the people that we all serve and they're going to be in control. And the second thing is that more of it's gonna be done online and in the comfort of your own home than anywhere else combined.
0: I've heard a handful of people kind of predict this. What do you think that looks like? Just, again, I'm in my home right now. It's got lots of little kids in it. It's got lots of people yeah, yeah. in it. Um, what does that look like? Doctors popping in uh, for shots, uh, them being on the move? What does that look like?
1: It could be. So the comfort of your own home could be you know, a, a, a phlebotomist coming in and, and collecting vitals and, and blood to send to a lab. It also could mean, and I think what's interesting is right now telemedicine is limited by diagnostic data. Right? What was what was possible ten years ago? Um, far more is possible now, and far more will be possible ten years from now, because we're going to be able to collect far more clinical data that allows a provider to treat more and more complex conditions. Right? So your, you know, there's there's rumors all the time that your Apple Watch actually has uh, the ability to be a, a pulse oximeter. Right? Right now, it's an EKG, and it's wonderful that my cardiologist that knows that I'm wearing an EKG MRS every day. So we're going to be able to collect far more information on on a on a frankly on an asynchronous ongoing basis and be able to share that with providers, but also switch from being reactive, right? Patient has a complaint, seeks out medical care, to the system or a provider or a, or a software provider being able to be proactive, detecting a, a rapid change in heart rate or blood pressure, detecting a, a change in weight, right? If someone's a diabetic and they lose a significant percentage of their body weight, um, they need their medication titrated, right? So there are going to be so many instances where I think that because of that data and these devices that are already uh, exist in your home, your watch, your phone, maybe we'll add a few intelligent ones like a scale or things like that, but I think that it will be, the majority of people will have access to these incredible tools that will collect significant percentage of patient's vitals that will be able to be transmitted on an ongoing basis to either a provider or a software uh, software tool to be able to increase the level of care that patients receive. And it'll be a hybrid between in-person and online, right? It's not going to be one versus the other.
0: I love it. And Zach, I just want to say it's so fun to have you talk about this because um, you do paint such a clear vision of what this can look like, and I can't wait for it to exist. Um, I want to switch gears here and just discuss sure, sure. a little bit of you as a founder. Um, did you always know you're going to be a founder? Do you love being an entrepreneur? Uh, was is this almost like an inevitable skin that you finally slipped into? Uh, you know, walk us through how you think you ended up here.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think I always grew up. Trying to just solve problems that were in my life for my family members or for myself, and so it wasn't so much as, as as an explicit decision of like I want to be an entrepreneur, I want to be a founder, but I just wanted to solve the problems that existed in my life. When I was in was when I was in high school, both my parents actually have needed canes because they they both had strokes, and I developed a patent-pending cane tip. Um, that reduced the shock and vibration in their wrist, elbows, and shoulders, and the, the daily use of a cane. So it took a, a really cheap, inexpensive cane. You would remove the tip and place a new tip on it. would just m- more naturally fit a, a patient's walking gait. And so for me, though, that wasn't the decision of I wanted to start a company or I wanted to do something, but rather, you know, my, my parents were in pain and I wanted to see if I could build a tool to help.
0: That's pretty awesome. What's your favorite part about being an entrepreneur and what's your least favorite part?
1: I think my favorite part is being able to create something from nothing, right? So you have ideas in your head, you work with a group of people, and you're able to help other people and have an impact on the world.
0: Last just question on you. What's one thing you swear by that keeps Zach on the tracks? Is it an app? Is it a routine? Is it a habit? Is it an exercise? What is the one thing that if you don't do it, you don't stay on the track?
1: For me, it's it's my family and my partner, Cleo. So every Sunday night, uh, I put away my phone and we have we have dinner. And it's hard for me to turn off in, in a bunch of other places and times, but they've just been so supportive of me. And for people that, you know, for my closest friends and family, they know that, you know, I, I will choose them. I say, we, we often joke like I will choose them year to year, uh, but I choose road day to day, every single day. So when they need me in the big moments, I will absolutely be there. But for me, having their support and just being able to spend quality time with them uh, and, and step back, frankly, like when you think about in a, a little bit, when you think about healthcare, being healthy isn't valuable in and of itself, right? hundred and twenty over eighty blood pressure is is isn't inherently beneficial. It's what your health allows you to do. Whether and it's what you want to do in your life, whatever goal that might be, whether it's climb a mountain, start a company, or like you know, make chocolate chip pancakes tomorrow morning with your kids, it doesn't matter. It's just that health allows you to do that, right? It's sort of the, the sine qua non. And so for me, that that it, it it makes it all worth it. It's like what I'm doing it for.
0: Just what's your coolest pinch me moment so far at Row? where you actually just, you felt yourself celebrate because it was so
1: goddamn cool? So my parents celebrated their 35 year anniversary and they went to a restaurant and the maitre d' of the restaurant recognized the ponytail doctor, my dad, from the TV commercial and he comped their entire meal. And you know, my parents have paid for everything for me my whole lo- whole life. Like, right? Like, a, you know, they they paid for college. They they have fed me. They've housed me. And so, just the fact that I I put my dad in a commercial, and now he's the famous ponytailed uh, ponytail doctor dad, uh, and he got a free meal with with my mom was was a was a moment where you know they were recognized by a stranger, and it was just uh, it's a fun it's a funny story that my overly proud Jewish mother tells almost every person that she can meet.
0: Okay, so now you get to pay it forward other than Row. What's one other startup? It can be super early stage, or it can just yeah. be a, a, an app, a tool, something that you're obsessed with using that sure. you want to pay it forward and give a yeah. shout out to.
1: So one of the things, one of the advice, piece of advice that I always give founders is to be um, shameless, relentless, and kind. Um, and so I'm about to be shameless, which is my partner, Cleo is the daily host of a Quibi show called Answered. And it's a six-minute uh, every day. Uh, they they produce episodes on the coronavirus, everything from how vaccine works, how vaccines work, to you know how long the virus can live on packaging, to all the way can you know can your dog get coronavirus, to how to, how to uh, get a haircut. And so um, I'm biased, um, but the show's pretty fantastic, and the app's free, and uh, it's a cup of coffee after that. So be shameless. I'm being shameless right now, and um, everyone should go watch my partner Cleo's show on Quibi.
0: Oh, that's adorable, that is so cute. Um, Zach, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there if you wanna learn more about Roe, check out roe.co and join us next week for the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel.